Welcome back to the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, the podcast on all things geopolitics and forecasting. Today, we are joined by Global Guessing alum David Mannheim, a lead researcher for human trial advocacy group One Day Sooner, who's previously appeared on the right side of maybe to discuss his accuracy forecasting COVID vaccines. David received a PhD in public policy from Party Rand Graduate School, where he focused on risk analysis and decision theory. He has done works on a variety of grants and contracts to research existential risk mitigation, public health, computational modeling, and infectious disease epidemiology for organizations such as the Rand Corporation. In addition to his work with One Day Sooner, David Lee currently works with the Foresight Institute and is a super forecaster with Good Judgment, Inc. Today, we'll talk with David about his work in biosecurity, including the recent report he worked on for the Council on Strategic Risks, a U.S. think tank, and his work with One Day Sooner on human trials to learn how this change in the way we test vaccines could save millions of lives. We'll also chat with David about the role that prediction currently plays in government policy and discuss why the technique is currently underutilized. Finally, we'll get David's thoughts on real money prediction markets and the importance of question quality in both prediction markets and platforms should we have time at the end of this podcast. But before we get started, we want to welcome David back to the show. David, it's great to have you on again. Thanks. It's, it's always nice to be introduced and hear about all the like awesome things that people say. Yeah, um, you, yeah, you got yourself a pretty nice background when you when you lay it all out. Um, so, you know, speaking on that background, we were sort of, you know, when you came on the right side, of maybe we talked to you about your background in history with forecasting. But we were hoping, you know, today you could maybe provide a high level summary about the work and research that you've done over the last few years, sort of what the guiding principles, if there were any behind that research. And where do you sort of see your research interests and career developing in the years ahead? So uh, the, the history of my work, kind of as I was ending grad school, I started working with some people who were interested in funding people to work on biosecurity policy, um, reducing pandemic risks. This was 2017, 2018. Um, and there were some uh, you know, really important problems that I had really solidly hoped were just theoretical. Um, and then COVID which uh, I, th I think most, most of, of the listeners are probably familiar with. Um, but uh, it, that, that made everything kind of more urgent and, and led to a lot of work trying to support kind of specific, um, specific policy decisions and has led to a lot of my work now. Um, in terms of the, the trajectory of my, um, of my work and how it's developing, um, I, Eisenhower supposedly said in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Um, so yeah, I had, I had some plans before, uh, before COVID about what things would, would look like. Um, there's also, there's a passage in the Talmud, which I, I always really like where um, it's talking about the, uh, the story of Esther and uh, um, you know, Queen Esther um, makes a picnic for the king and the advisor, who's the bad guy. And, um, in, in the Talmud, it asked, so what was she thinking? Like, what, what, what was the plan? Um, and they list like, oh, maybe she was thinking that she would um, you know, change his mind, or maybe she was thinking that she would get him to, to confess to something, or maybe she was, and, and then they ask like, uh, you know, like, okay, so which one was it? They're like, we don't, we don't know. So they, they you know, go and ask an angel and the angel goes, oh yeah, all of them. She was just kind of like hedging her bets. Like, I don't know, something will come up. Um, which I think is, is kind of the, the, uh, the more honest answer for most people about like, oh, so like, what were you really planning? And the answer was, I don't know. I was, I was just hoping things would work out well. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's mostly, um, you know, I, I, it's a, a long way of saying, I, I don't know. Um, like, I don't know what's, uh, what, what the high value things to be working on in the future are. Um, I'm lucky to kind of have a lot of flexibility in which specific projects I'm working on. Um, but a, a lot of it is still around um, biosecurity and large scale risks to humanity. Have you seen um, approaches to how people think about policy or even um, how people think about informing policy decisions that process change, you know, from like over the last 12 months? 
um, has the work that you're doing become any more difficult? Um, maybe given just the number of uh, inputs people are considering now versus before potentially? Yeah, I, I think that um, in some ways it became um, much more difficult and in some ways it become, became much easier. So I think um, one of the problems that, that typically happens in public policy is that it's really hard to get attention to the topics that, are, that you know, you're trying to work on. Um, and right now there's, there's lots of attention on pandemics. Um, so that's, that's not my problem now, which is, right. um, you know, that's a nice part about this. Um, the difficult part is, yeah, it gets very crowded. So I was, I was doing a bunch of work, especially early on for COVID, um, trying to um, explain to policymakers about what kind of what pieces they need to be focusing on next and how is it that you can use test and trace effectively and why you should be spending money on vaccines earlier. And um, kind of over the course of 2020 and by kind of early 2021, definitely, um, I kind of saw that um, the space was so crowded that there was very little uh, marginally that I could do. I think um, there are definitely people who are still doing really valuable work, um, but without kind of a really strong institutional platform, um, at this point, it's very difficult to reach policymakers about that. Um, so most of the policy support that I do is um, to help other people who have those kinds of platforms, not um, kind of independently trying to trying to produce research or inform people. I definitely want to sort of circle back in terms of you know reaching to policymakers and sort of getting the agenda on their plates, and I think that'll be very relevant when we talk about uh, your work doing research in terms of human trial advocacy. But before we get there, just before we sort of move on from your background, it seems like, you know, biosecurity is is very sort of linked with an idea of quantified forecasting, which you also have a very good background in. You're a super forecaster for Good Judgment, Inc. We've had you on to talk about uh, your accuracy in forecasting COVID vaccines. Um, sort of what was the history between your interests in these two areas? Did your interest in biosecurity and managing biorisk lead you to forecasting? Was it a little bit of, did forecasting lead you in a biosecurity? Were they kind of just two similar ideas that you sort of came across on at a point in time and they kind of meshed well together? So when you were sort of yeah. planning out your career, you sort of worked on both of them. Um, yeah, I'm just curious. So uh, I, I actually, um, when I was uh, when I was applying to grad school, um, my wife and we were expecting our, our first kid, and I realized that if I didn't go to grad school now, I, I never would. Um, and um, so I, I applied, and I was planning to go. And right around then, um, Good Judgment Project started, um, and I had kind of some free time since I wasn't like particularly invested in the work that I was doing anymore, um, and um, you know, planning to go to grad school and and waiting for a kid. And I had like a bunch of extra time and. The good judgment stuff seemed really interesting, and I so I, I signed up, and it was really cool and very very fun. And kind of I was just starting a PhD in public policy, and I thought, oh, like geopol predicting geopolitics seems like super relevant for that. Um, and in some ways it is, and in some ways it very much isn't. Um, but kind of that's that's when I got involved in forecasting. Um, that was kind of on the side of actually being in graduate school. Um, and then kind of while I was in graduate school, I got more involved in um, effective altruism and kind of uh, thinking about some of the uh, larger scale questions. Um, and it turns out that the EA community overlaps a lot with the forecasting community um, in various ways. Um, and um, on the EA side, I was like, oh, well, like, of the issues that seem super important, um, and there are a bunch of them, I happen to have a uh, kind of competitive advantage in bio because I had done some uh, pandemic modeling before grad school and then um, work on it in grad school. Um, so I, I kind of, it seemed like a really useful uh, place to be. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how I got involved. Um, so yeah, they, they were mostly 
parallel. Did you find that they sort of like reinforce one another? Like the fact that you were in forecasting probably made you more likely to stick in terms of doing biosecurity and effective altruism and that sort of made you keep doing forecasting. Was there some sort of, you know, doing one yeah. helps with the other? So I, I kind of feel like, um, I guess, more generally about forecasting. Um, forecasting is a, a really very general skill. Um, it's It's kind of... Um, I, I like to think of it like um, arithmetic or reading where you, you know, it's, it's a basic skill where like when you're doing anything, like sometimes you need to add numbers together to be able to figure out how much of something there is. And sometimes you need to read words to figure out what other people are saying. And sometimes you need to estimate probabilities to figure out what will happen in the future. Um, like these are like really, really basic things. Um, so um, I don't think like I mostly don't think of forecasting as um, kind of on an individual level at least as a kind of oh this is this is what I do it's more this is a tool that I'm good at using um, it's a useful tool you know I I program some and I forecast you know I, I do a lot of different things that help me kind of get answers um, I I'll say this is really different than. Um, kind of super forecasting or aggregated forecasting and forecasting platforms where um, the forecasts that individuals have are aggregated to get to a better aggregate estimate than any individual's estimate. And, and that's kind of, that's a, that's a different um, discussion. Most of the forecasting that I do that's kind of um, in a, you know, any kind of official capacity is through those platforms. But most of the forecasting that I do for um, bio risk stuff is not through those those platforms. Um, actually, the, the biggest way that I'm I, I, I use those platforms for bio risk is trying to figure out what questions we should be asking groups of people rather than actually trying to um, forecast them myself. Awesome. So now we sort of want to move to the main topics of the podcast and sort of starting off with this recent research that you you were working on for the Council of Strategic Risk talking about the best way to prepare for a future pandemic. And on Twitter, you had written that one of the key ways to responding better to future pandemics is developing effective and safe vaccines within 100 days. Um, <clears throat> What are the sort of prerequisite technologies and processes uh, and changes that need to be adopted for us to be able to achieve it? And then not only, you know, in the abstract, what is needed to achieve it, sort of what is the, do you think it's likely that um, governments in the West and across the world will actually um, adopt the necessary changes and procedures to be able to develop and um, produce effective and safe vaccines within a hundred days. Okay, so there, there are a couple of a couple of different, several different things there. Um, so um, the first one uh, you mentioned was the report um, that we did for Council for Strategic Risks, um, which focused on warning and kind of the heterogeneous nature of. Um, health systems across the world and ability to detect diseases and respond to diseases. Um, and so what, what we were thinking a lot about was how do you notice emerging diseases very quickly, um, both internationally and at a national level? Um, and then like, how do you test for them? How do you, uh, how do you get early warning? Which is kind of the, a really critical piece. Um, what governments are currently thinking a lot more about um, is vaccines. Um, for, for obvious reasons for COVID, um, it turns out that for COVID, um, we didn't come up with treatment yet. Um, so like that didn't pan out. Um, and we certainly didn't do a good job with noticing it before it spread or testing people adequately to prevent spread. Um, but, but vaccines work like really, really, really well. Um, I, I don't think I need to pitch the vaccines work. If you're not vaccinated, you're being dumb and whatever, but, but I'm happy to have um, long 
discussions um, with people about that. Um, see long discussions I've had on Twitter for more. Um, but uh, but I, I think the the pitch for vaccines is very much the governments spend lots of attention on the things that are at the top of their mind. And right now, one of the things that they're really interested in is this kind of next time this happens, um, we should have vaccines really quickly. And I think that with the right investments, that's very possible. And they're super interested. So it's very likely that we're going to get the, the investments. Um, it's possible 100 days is a little bit too ambitious. And, you know, it'll be 120 days, in which case we will have failed horribly because we've only, you know, tripled the speed at which we, you know, so um, I, I think, you know, we, it, it'd be great if we sped this up to anything like that um, extent. But, but I think um, actually, actually, the, the key point here is um, about the second thing that you mentioned is like, how likely is it that we'll, that we'll kind of do this and have this in place in time? Um, and I think the answer to that is, um, if we do the, the noticing what disease is happening quickly, we shouldn't need vaccines. Um, you know, the ideal situation is one where 100 days after a novel disease outbreak starts, it's already completely controlled and it's gone and you never have to worry about it. Um, and then like, oh, like maybe there are some people who are spending money developing vaccines, which to, to clarify, if we, if we um, waste a billion dollars every time there's an emerging disease developing a vaccine that ends up not being needed, um, that will have been a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic investment. And is that um, how much sort of the COVID vac, like how much Pfizer spent on R and D so, for their vaccine? No, so so there are a couple of pieces um, that kind of overlap. Um, vaccines are expensive to develop, not because it's hard to make vaccines, but because it's hard to test and approve them. Um, and getting from status quo to 100 days is mostly not about designing better vaccines. It's about figuring out better ways to test and improve them. Um, so, you know, we, we, everybody now knows a lot about phase one and phase two and phase three trials and how all of that works. Um, and the point is that's really slow and you can parallelize a lot and you, you can do a lot to speed that up. But really the hope right now is that some of the newer technologies, mRNA vaccines specifically, um, allow you to bypass a lot of that. Um, and if you can move straight to phase three trials because you know that the vaccine platform is, is very well tolerated, um, or you can do something else, and, and there's a lot of discussion right now about what that something else is to ensure that it's safe um, when you do this, and we can talk about challenge trials later. Um, but but you know, if you can figure that out, then it's a lot cheaper to make vaccines. Um, and then there's the, the other half, which is it's really expensive to produce them. Um, but if you have um, factories that can be repurposed, um, which you can't usually do for traditional vaccines, but you probably can do pretty well, if not really well for mRNA vaccines, then actually a lot of your fixed costs also are much lower. So when you're not producing like the COVID vaccine, you're producing the flu vaccine or something right. else. Yeah. So it, it'd be great if we could just say like, hey, like we have a six month stock of, you know, tetanus vaccine right now. And like, we like keeping a six month stock, but actually we're going to let that go down to a two month stock by not producing that vaccine for four months and pumping out tons of doses of new vaccine that we just need, realized we needed to make. Um and, and if it turns out that we actually need lots of it, then we turn off other production lines. And, you know, um, you can't do that right now because most of the vaccines that we make are not mRNA vaccines. But, um, but part of the idea of this, you know, moving to a 100-day um, development cycle is maybe we can fix that. Um, do you think that these, um, you know, questions about biosecurity are like predicated on, or like, do you think these countries are making internal forecasts basically about when the next um pandemic is going to happen and that's what they're sort of basing their willingness to invest in some of these technologies on um 
because I mean, I think that we, at least it was depicted as sort of a black swan event when COVID happened, but as, as we know, and as you probably know, these things are, you know, somewhat cyclical, they happen all the time, uh, maybe not to that scale, but yeah, curious about your thoughts. And do you also think so, that we're doing enough, you know, like before the pandemic in 2019, the US and the UK were ranked the most, had the most pandemic re prepared response, and both the US and the UK were number one for surveillance as well, which to be fair, they were, but also, you know, the huge emergence and explosion of variants calls into question that. So maybe also not only a black swan event not prepared for, but do they even, you know, view the scope big enough as, as they should, if, if, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess the, to, to start, I want to say um, there's this um, conceptual issue that, forecasters and everybody else all have about what it is that happens with like this type of event about like, oh, when is the next one going to happen? Um, and if you think about um, forecasting earthquakes um, and like the people who actually do this, who build uh, models for forecasting earthquakes, um, nobody asks the question, when is the next earthquake going to be? They ask, what is the probability of an earthquake in this time frame? And the reason why they ask what is the probability of an earthquake in this time frame? instead of um, when is the next one going to be um, is because you can say something useful about how often they happen and you can't say a lot useful about when the next one happens. So you can forecast when a hurricane will hit land, but you, and you can even forecast like approximately how many hurricanes will form in a given season. But um, so that's like the step to figuring it's out not, when the next one's going to happen is by trying to understand right, the so, frequency. Right. So I, I actually know. So I, I think that I think that the so there are a couple of pieces here, but I think the first thing is what's the frequency, right? Like what? How often are there large scale pandemics? And the answer to that is largely how often do we screw up response? Um, uh, a catastrophe risk modeler that that I used to work with um, said, you know, insurers want to know how often. Um, London is going to flood. Um, and they think that this is a question about um, rainfall. Like they think that that's what they're, what they're supposed to be predicting. But actually it's just a question about the, the Thames barrier, which they built to prevent floods. Like how likely is that to fail? How likely, right? Like that's actually the question. Um, so the question of when, you know, how often will there be a pandemic um, is actually a question about like, how often will public health response not do the thing that we need them to do to make sure it doesn't turn into a pandemic? Um, so are you working from the premise that in your ideal world that, you know, a country's, um, you know, CDC or whatever it is will, with full information, be able to mitigate any potential, um, you know, mass, mass bio uh, emergency? So certainly it's much much better and cheaper to stop pandemics before they're pandemics right so um it, you know and 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 i think public health doesn't actually get enough credit for the fact that every time there's a new maybe pandemic it doesn't turn into a pandemic and you see right. a couple of news stories about it's like counterterrorism um, you never see the right. you, you don't see right you don't see you know, well Counterterrorism, at least they get to brag about them at some point. They take people right. years later. And then everybody says, and then everybody says, well, but the FBI told them to do it. So maybe, maybe, <laughs> but, um, and, and maybe they didn't, but um, that's, that's another discussion. Yes. Um, but no, with, with pandemic, so we, we stopped SARS. We stopped Middle East respiratory syndrome. We stopped um, every Ebola outbreak that's happened. Um, has been eventually controlled, sometimes really quickly, and sometimes it takes a long time to catch it. And actually, that's the perfect example of where it is that like every time that you notice an Ebola outbreak within a week or two of it starting, it gets shut down really quickly. Um, and the rare occasions where you don't notice it for months, which is what happened with the West Africa outbreak in 2014, where it kind of, it started in a place they'd never seen Ebola before and they didn't realize what it was for a while. And, there, and by the time they like really started responding, it was just 
a mess and it was all over the place. That's really expensive and hard, but, but they still managed to stop it, you know, eventually. Um, the, the way that you want to deal with disease outbreaks is overreacting very quickly and then having everybody say, well, it's not really a risk because, um, right? I mean, like you don't really want them saying that, but, but that was everybody's um, continued response. Like, well, how, how bad is pandemic risk? Like we can probably handle this. Do we really even need to have a pandemic response group um, you know, at senior levels in the US? Maybe we can just disband them. Um, you know, like these, those were the discussions, like maybe it's just not that big a deal. We probably don't need to spend all this money. Um, but when a pandemic happens, it should be really obvious that no, actually you, you needed all of that money. Mm. Um, that was really worthwhile. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, so I, I think that, that that's the, the background for, so, um, what are they thinking about? Um, Yes, people at senior levels in government are very actively thinking about the, um, the likelihood and um, uh, the likelihood of pandemics, what the sources are likely to be, um, what it is that they can do to control them quickly. Like this is, this is a huge thing. Um, I, I know some people working on this for the US, for the um, UK, the EU is like, everybody's working on like, okay, so like how frequently does this happen? What types of things should we be worried about? Um, and hopefully uh, they, they actually do prepare. Um, I will- Is it just a public health issue to you? Or like how much oh. are you communicating with other departments? So like, obviously we saw a lot of different yeah. industries and people be affected by these pandemics, you know, education and obviously health and infrastructure. like you know, yeah. real estate, do you, are you having conversations with all these different shareholders about the pandemic preparedness? Um, so uh, 2019, I believe, World Economic Forum, they, they list like, what are the large scale risks? Like, what should people be worried about? Should they be worried about inflation or, you know, um, real estate bubbles or pandemics? And pandemics was on their list and they highlighted it. And they're like, this is worrying. We should make sure to prepare for this Everybody should have, um, you know, their their risk mitigation plans. Um, you know, you you have a plan for what you do if um, your building burns down. You should have a plan for what to do if there's a pandemic. You should figure out how to, how to get people to work from home. All the businesses out there should like make sure to do this because obviously this is a good idea and like maybe this will happen. So you should be prepared for this risk. Um, everybody, you know, kind of going going back to what you said. Everybody knew this was a real possibility and should have been ready for it. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think um, I'm not having those conversations partially because um, you know, back, back when I was looking at things like supply chain risk, you had the list of like, what are the key risks you should be or business continuity planning. I have a, a friend who, who works in business continuity planning um, and like they have a list, you know, their risk register of like which things should you be prepared for um, to make sure that you have a plan for. And pandemics is on the list. It's been on the list. Um, did people take it seriously enough? Uh, some of them did. There were a lot of businesses that transitioned really smoothly to working remotely, um, to figuring out how they could do things without having their full workforce. To like, there were a lot of businesses that just did that, and they weren't the ones that everybody focused on because like they didn't fail. So obviously they were fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, so so yes, these these conversations are happening all over the place. Obviously, right now, there, there are lots of them happening because um, people are currently focused on pandemics. I, I will flag that um, almost everybody's focused on this and almost everybody realizes that it's a big deal. And then you hear reports that the U.S. Congress is thinking about funding uh, a sixth of what Biden requested for the pandemic preparedness um, funding, um, yeah. $5 billion instead of $30 billion. And this is total, not per year, not... Um, the New York and, Times is a great breakdown of how the spending changed as well across the different pieces of yeah. the bill, and it's it's pretty messed up. So so anyway, so I, you you know if I, I keep on saying this, but um, I don't know what will convince Congress to um, to to actually take this seriously and fund pandemic preparedness. And if you had asked me a month ago or six months ago or whatever, um, I would have said. Um, 
well, a pandemic is definitely enough to do it. Like right now we have one, but evidently I was being optimistic there because um, they're still looking at what to cut and pandemic preparedness managed to make the list. Um, so we're sort of talking about pandemic preparedness right now, but I sort of want to move on to your work that you've done with mm -hmm. One Day Sooner, which is sort of more so looking what happens if we're unable to prevent the pandemic at the start and a pandemic takes hold. And I'll let you provide a sort of a, a more in-depth mm -hmm. background into the idea yeah. of challenge trials. But the work that you do for One Day Sooner is to promote this idea of challenge trials, which is um, creating an experimental vaccine, uh, giving it to people, and then exposing them to the virus and testing out the vaccines that way. Um, one of the reasons why vaccine development takes so long is that uh, a phase three trial, you have to infect a lot of people and then just wait to see if they get exposed to the virus and then determine the um, efficacy of it. And so the idea behind challenge trials is, well, we can speed that up by exposing everyone to the virus. And so I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more in depth the concept mm -hmm. of challenge trials and why you are a proponent of them, and also sort of looking at the best faith argument that is against human trials. And I thought it would also just be really interesting for you to talk about human trials versus vaccine creation. So say those initial vaccines we got with Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson back in the winter versus using human trials for boosters. There was a, a tweet out by Robin Wiblin um, a few days as we're recording this podcast, where he wrote on Twitter, we're currently using mRNA vaccines that protect people against the virus as it was in January 2020. Understandable, it's new technology, but we should aim to get to a place where they're updated much more often and us using an 18-month-old 18, 18 sequence looks crazy in retrospect. And so... I'm going to assume that human trials can also play a role in sort of leveraging mRNA uh, technology to get booster shots out much more quickly. So, so with that framing, yeah, could you just talk about uh, okay. one day sooner and challenge trials? So uh, the first thing I think it's important to say is challenge trials are not a pandemic preparedness thing. They're not a novel thing. We've been using them for decades and decades. Um, you know, the early, the early use of, um, kind of what we would now call challenge trials, um, was like exposing people to, um, to cowpox to see if it, um, protected them against, um, you know, smallpox. Um, that was a challenge. You, you introduce something, you, you expose somebody to a disease on purpose in order to see what happened. Um, uh, we, we don't call that a challenge trial. We call that uh, variolation. Like that, that was the first vaccine. Like that's, that's what you do. Um, but, you know, exposing people to a pathogen to figure out what happens um, has a, a, an obvious, obviously checkered history, um, especially when you go far back. Um, and there were some kind of horrific human rights abuses that occurred, um, some of which involved infectious diseases, some of which involved just like doing horrible things um, during World War II, afterwards. Um, and so recently people have said, so challenge trials are super ethically dubious because people have done bad things in the past, um, which is a very weird argument given that they were doing challenge trials in the 70s and 80s and 90s for all sorts of different diseases. Um, because it turns out that um, every type of trial that you do um, you want to control as much as you can in order to figure out what's happening. Like that's, you know, scientific method is you, you leave like one variable at a time to like, you, you switch one thing at a time and see what changes. Um, and, um, econometric and statistical analysis that like looks at what happens when you just leave everything alone and, and, you know, can compare different groups is really useful. But um, kind of that's what we're we're stuck with when you randomize people to either having the you know a vaccine or not have a vaccine, and then you send them out and wait and see what happens when they get infected or not. You're you're not controlling one of the really key variables. Um, you also 
don't get a lot of information because you're not actually monitoring the people when they get infected. Hmm. Um, so um, the, the kind of two key things about challenge trials are you get a lot more data because you can actually monitor the people full time and, and the COVID challenge trials that have started, um, you know, they're, they're taking blood, I think once or twice a day, they're checking blood pressure twice a day. They're checking, like they're, they're controlling the people's diets. They're like, they're doing all of these things. Does that reduce the number of people they have to test on as well? So that's, that's one of the other things is, yeah. So you can get really good data with very few people. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there's a, and, and I'll get to this when I talk about the, the objections to challenge trials, but the, um, the, so the, the key kind of advantages are you get much better data, you get, um, you, it's, it's probably cheaper to do, though it depends a little bit because like there's this trade-off of you have, you know, a hundred volunteers, um, doing it for, you know, two weeks versus you have, you know, 50,000 for, you know, most of a, a year. Um, so there's, there's kind of, there's a trade-off there. Um, so, so I guess all of this leads to, okay, so what about using challenge trials for something like COVID? Um, and that's actually much more ethically problematic, especially early on. Um, because we didn't know how dangerous it was or who it was least dangerous for. And alongside controlling as much as you can about the conditions when you do trials generally, um, trials generally are also supposed to minimize risk. And like, there's no reason to expose people to more risk than you need to in a trial. And that's kind of more risk than you need to. So can you do these trials then on vulnerable populations? Sorry. So, so, so that's, yeah. So, so there are a couple of questions here, but um, there's definitely no reason for instance, to, um, you know, use twice as many people as you need um, just, just to like have more people um, because you're exposing more people. Um, There's, you know, it's, it's really difficult to justify um, putting very high risk people into these trials. So can you put, obese people into the trials um, when they're at higher risk? Can you put elderly people into the trial when they're at risk? Can you put, and people are especially sensitive to, though they're actually probably at lower risk, um, children into such a trial because there are consent issues in addition to um, risk issues. Um, so there are a lot of questions about kind of what it is that you can, that you can do. Um, so minimizing risk means you need to know what the risk is. And early on with COVID, we didn't. Um, you know, we just didn't know. And like, how can you ethically expose people to a disease if you don't know how dangerous it is? Um, and I think the straightforward answer um, to almost all of the objections that I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, the straightforward answer is when you have volunteers who are fully aware of what the risks are and consent, it's difficult to understand why it is that regulators should be in a position to say, but we don't think that it's fair to the people who are volunteering to allow them to do the thing that they're volunteering to do. Although as a forecaster, you might make the argument that most people are poor at understanding odds and and risks and so uh you know maybe if you're you know 30 and in shape there's probably not a no argument really to be made against them but if perhaps mm-hmm. you know you're in a higher risk group you just might not be able to understand your relative risk and maybe you know that could be uh an an, an yeah. argument against so informed consent is really really critical for all trials you have to explain this to a person in a way that they fully understand it um there are lots of people who are right. So yeah, you should, you should make sure that people are well calibrated, um, you know, for trials, for everything, everybody should be well calibrated. This is the kind of, you know, as I said before, it's like reading and and arithmetic, everybody should be able to do this. Um, but that's, that's a different um, discussion. No. So, so the, the, um, 
the key point for informed consent is, yeah, you do need to make sure people understand the risks. Um, but as, as somebody pointed out um, early on with challenge trials, when people said, well, can you really fully inform people about the risks when they are, um, you know, when, when the risks are still somewhat unknown? Um, and the response was, we could staff a challenge trial entirely with people who have advanced degrees in medicine and biology. Um, and, and, and the objection is they don't understand. Like that's a really hard, that's a really hard pitch. Um, so I, I think, yeah, there, there are no, there are no types of trials that are so um, ethics proof that you couldn't do them wrong. Um, but it's possible to do most challenge trials ethically. Now I want to, you, you said, what's the strongest case against them? And I think there are a lot of really key um, points. So the first one is, um, even if you could do a challenge trial ethically, if you don't do the challenge trial ethically, that doesn't help. Um, and I think that this is an actually much stronger argument than um, I want it to be, because it turns out that the people running trials don't always do a great job. Mm. Um, and if they do a bad job and they don't actually fully um, you know, inform the people who are participating and they don't do a good job with that, then it could be very unethical to do. Um, I think that this is you know, really important. Um, like We have to get that right. And I think that safeguards to make sure that we do are really critical. Um, the second, I think, really important objection um, is, um, should there be a limit to how much risk we're willing to expose somebody to? Um, if you imagine that we have a novel disease with a you know, 90 or 100% fatality rate, um, is it ever possibly ethical to have somebody say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that? I'm going to volunteer anyway. Um, like, is, is, a, is a doctor ever in a position to say, yes, I'm going to kill this patient? They volunteered, so it's fine. Um, that's, a really, that's a really hard um, uh, ethical case to make. And then the question is, okay, so, so should there be some upper limit? Um, and, and that's a question of kind of, do we care more about, um, you know, where do we place the burden of ethical responsibility in running a trial? Um, and, and these are kind of very thorny ethical problems and I don't have pat answers to them. Um, the only thing I can say is um, to the extent that there's a, a societal benefit, um, I think um, it, it seems strange to me to say, um, nobody's allowed to be heroic and put their lives at risk or sacrifice their lives to save others. Um, we, we, don't, we don't tell soldiers you're not allowed to jump on grenades. Um, you know, okay, so, so. Just real quick, sort of, yeah, so, yeah. you know, not jumping on, on grenades, but looking in terms of just the case, again, sort of two quick points and tying it back mm -hmm. to this idea of using it for booster shots. Um, is there any sort of, with historical vaccines, is there any sort of risk that, you know, actually changing from a base vaccine to becoming a booster for a variant isn't actually just, you know, a simple change. And because one vaccine worked, a booster actually is not likely to work. And then sort of related to that is, is there evidence that, you know, updating mRNA vaccines is different than tra traditional vaccines and is challenge trials in some ways a much more feasible concept today because of the mRNA technology? So challenge trials are much faster um, and can use smaller, um, smaller populations. And that's really important, especially if you need to be able to iterate. Um, so I think there's a really clear case for why it is you would want to use challenge trials if you need to iterate quickly. Um, there is a fundamental problem with vaccines or anything else you stick into humans um, that you haven't tested extensively, which is you haven't tested it extensively. Now, there's a kind of crazy um, anti-vaccine take on this, which is, and you can never know what's going to happen because um, I really like quoting uh, a scene from Family Guy um, where, where somebody asks Peter if he would buy a used car. Um, and he goes, oh, uh, I had a, a friend who bought a used car once. Bam, 10 years later, heart attack. 
Um, and you're like, that's, you know, and, and, and that seems to be the kind of thing where people are like, well, but, but vaccines, you never know what could happen. And you're like, no, you do. You can, you can look really closely. You can, you can monitor people. You can find out what happened. Um, but um, when you put something new and untested in someone's body, um, the way that they react is hard to predict. Now, some of the things that we put into people's bodies, um, we can predict exactly what's going to happen because it's the same as what we've put in there before. Um, the thing is that what you're, what you're worried about for vaccines um, is basically two things. The first is the adjuvants, the non-vaccine part of the vaccine, um, which is the part that gets your immune system to react or whatever. Um, those can have problems and cause people to have allergic reactions or other, other issues. Um, and that's a big deal. And you need to test that for each kind of new type of vaccine that you use. Um, so most new vaccines try and use the same adjuvants that other vaccines use. Like you try and be really conservative with that because you don't want to take risks. Um, mRNA vaccines use some new things that are, um, you know, the, the, the way that they bind the mRNA to a lipid. So the, the lipids are new, but you can use the same one for lots of different vaccines. So now that we have one that seems to work pretty safely, um, you're good on that. The second thing you worry about is um, what you're trying to do when you vaccinate somebody is train their immune system. Um, and there's good training of immune system and there's bad training of immune system. Um, and the, the good training of immune system is your immune system can now detect this and fight it. Um, and bad training of immune system can be lots of different things. Um, and some of those things are, um, there's, there's vaccine dependent enhancement that's seen for some diseases where you give somebody a vaccine and then if you expose them to the disease or certain strains of the disease, it's actually much worse than if they hadn't been vaccinated. So dengue, there's a problem with this. Um, so you really don't wanna get a partially protective dengue vaccine because that is much, much worse than not being vaccinated. Um, then there's the, the other, the other and, and we haven't seen that for COVID and it's, it's, it seems to be generally unusual to have vaccine dependent enhancement. Um, and I, I don't know if I know enough to get into the um, immunology and biochemistry um, involved. The, the second thing is um, you might train the immune system to react to something that it encounters other ways. And it would be really bad if we change the mRNA sequence that we stick into the vaccine to try and get it to do one thing. And what we actually train it to do is say, attack something that looks exactly like peanut protein. So now everybody has a peanut allergy, um, which, which is super unlikely. That specifically is super unlikely. But um, the, the issue that we have with blood clots, which is very rare, um, to the extent that we think that this is a thing that's um, due to the vaccine is basically, yeah, you, you've trained the immune system to react to something. Um, and um, if the thing that it reacts to causes the immune system to do something funny, then you have a problem. Um, and yeah, th there's some chance that if you switch what mRNA sequence you're putting into the vaccine, um, you cause new problems. And the only way to find out whether that's true is to try it. Um, and this is one of the downsides of challenge trials, which is um, they can get you efficacy data very, very quickly with much less work than, than uh, traditional trials. They can't get safety data any faster. Mm. You still need larger sample. You still need a certain size sample to get safety data. You still need, and, and you still need- Would you that know, make it then better fit for boosters? Um, so- to the extent that we're testing the boosters just for efficacy, which is probably what we want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to the extent that we're worried about whether there are new safety concerns. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're no kind worry. of, yeah. but it seems, it seems like we have a pretty good grasp about most of the safety characteristics. So I, I think, um, yeah, I think that the the risk, especially for small changes to an existing vaccine, are pretty low. Okay. Awesome. Um, so I think we want to talk about one more um, sort of topic before we wrap, and that's something that we've talked about um, a decent amount on this podcast, and it pertains to forecasting within government institutions. Um, and you know, we're curious from your perspective and given your experience, you know, what in ideal world. 
um, would forecasting adoption within those institutions look like? And how does that compare to sort of what's going on right now? Um, you know, we've, we've heard in the past that forecasting might um, threaten the current sort of organizational hierarchy that exists in these government institutions. Um, and that's sort of one of the big uh, obstacles to full adoption. But yeah, curious as to what your read on the situation is. Um, so I guess the, the place to start is how do, um, how do, um, how does um, forecasting work in general? Like how should people use forecasting for themselves? Um, and the answer is, as I said before, like it, you know, everybody should, you know, when, when you're making a big decision you make a pro con list, you ask other people what they do, um, you know, what, what went well, what went badly. Like these are, these are kind of the standard things that everybody should do when they make a decision. Um, and, and also you should forecast what the different things that could happen are and um, assign probabilities to them so that you can calculate expected value. Because these are all kind of basic tools that you should be using. Um, people don't write pro-con lists. Like this is like, you know, the really basic stuff that you're like, oh, like you're about to buy a house. Have you written down the pros and cons of the three different options that you're looking at? And people are like, no, well, maybe that's a good idea. And you're like, you were about to spend a half million dollars on something. Like, where's the very basic level of, so I think people, people do a bad job with decisions. Um, governments also make decisions. Um, and, and they actually, they're better at this than most people um, because they have people who are employed to do analysis of their decisions. Um, and, you know, so they, they definitely do much more sophisticated decision and analysis um, than most people. Uh, but because, you know, we, we were talking about the, you know, is the U.S. government spending $6 billion or $30 billion on pandemic preparedness? Those are much larger numbers than a half million dollars on a house. Um, so you should be doing more decision analysis to justify, like, what it is you should be doing. Um, so I think the amount of decision analysis that they need to do um, is much larger. They do a lot of it. They've started adopting um, forecasting in some places. I know that the UK has an internal um, forecasting thing that they're starting. Um, yeah, there's someone in charge of organizing a, a market between the different in, intelligence agencies. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the US intelligence community also, um, they, they're the people who paid for Good Judgment Project initially. And I don't know anything about what they're doing specifically with forecasting now, um, but I, I would be surprised if they had dropped it completely. Um, the U.S. intelligence community does not like talking about anything that they do ever. Um, but you know, so th they may be using it also. Um, so I think that's the 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 first piece of like, um, you know, what does it look like now? And the answer is they're slowly adopting it. Um, changing large systems is hard and takes time. Um, my ideal world is that they do this slightly faster, but also um, there's no way to switch. You know. I, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers does large-scale project planning all the time to build dams and things. Um, should they suddenly switch their system to use judgmental forecasts? My answer is no, they should figure out how to incorporate this intelligently into their system because they have a really complicated system. And like You can't just replace it. You, so I, I think some of this is they may actually be doing about as good a job as they can I would be surprised if that was true, um, but you know, some of this just just takes time, and and forecasting is relatively new, um, so I, I don't want to. Do you think uh, it's heading in the right direction? Where in say you know five ten years, there's actually like serious and you know systemic use or in institutional use of forecasting in government, where it's probably most high impact, most value add. Obviously, we won't see it everywhere where it should probably be used within that period of time, but at least in, you know, the place where it's making the most sort of marginal impact. Do you think we're heading in that I, direction? I, I, can cheat, I can cheat a little bit and say, well, you haven't defined the question clearly enough to grade it. So I can give whatever answer I want and I won't be wrong. But no, I, I don't think that they're going to be using it. I, I don't think they're going to be using it as much as they should. Um, I think that there are a lot of barriers between them actually doing it and... So I think 
Eliezer Yukowski has a thing um, in Rationality Ed is Zombies, the sequences, the, the long thing that he wrote. Um, it's very, very long. Um, on um, kind of having uh, something that you care about, something to protect. Like you need to actually care about the thing that you're doing um, and not something else. Um, and I think, you know, if you're not trying to do the thing that you're supposed to be doing, if you're not trying to do a good job making decisions, um, then you're never going to make good decisions. Like that, it just, it can't happen. Um, and I feel like this is, this is, you know, Robin Hansen, um, started out really interested in, um, uh, forecasting markets, um, which is a little bit different than judgment judgmental forecasting, but like, you know, in the same ballpark. And he's like, look, we should be doing this everywhere. Why, why are people not doing this everywhere? And he spent a long time, um, kind of trying to figure out why everybody wasn't doing it everywhere. And his conclusion, which I think is a little bit, um, a little bit cynical, a little bit too cynical is, um, actually people don't want to do the things that they say they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, everybody says that the elephant in the brain, everybody has this like huge things that they like, what they actually care about, you know, what a politician actually cares about is not saving lives and, and doing things that people want. It's getting, getting reelected. reelected. Yeah. Right. So that's, yeah. if that's what they care about, then they're going to optimize for getting reelected. Um, and it turns out that um, forecasting might be the best thing to do if what you're trying to do is make optimal public policy decisions. But if the thing you're forecasting isn't, will this get me reelected? Then it's not gonna influence policymakers the way you want it to. I think that's, I think that's um, too cynical. I, I, maybe, maybe it's that I'm younger than Robin, so I'm still more idealistic. Um, but but I, I think, I think there, there are lots of places where there's room to improve, there's room to fix systems in ways that align incentives better. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do think that there's, there's something there that's, um, that's useful, um, that's um, kind of, um, we can make marginal changes. And I think the, the adoption of forecasting in some places is indicative of this. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to dive into this um, more with you, but unfortunately, we have some time constraints on our end, and, and um, so unfortunately, we'll have to move on from them. Um, we also had too many topics, which we teased at the introduction. Uh, maybe we can send them along your way, and you can write up a little one-paragraph response so that, you know, the listeners can go go check out what, what, what might have been said there. Um, and I guess we'll just have to have you back on the show sometime, David, again, to talk about more things because with you, it's, it's very hands easy. Are tied. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're going to have actually the first probably true rapid fire round, given that um, Andrew here has to go in six minutes. So you're going to be making a forecast on one, two, three, four, five, six questions because we've increased this list up from the original four and so you're going to have to give some rapid fire predictions and i'll start us off with what is the likelihood that russia annexes more territory within eastern europe by 2026 uh, um by 2026 and a one sentence explanation. 40 Forty percent. I think that I think that there's a lot of pushback on what they've been doing already. Um, but I also think that Putin doesn't care very much. Um, That's fair. We'll see how distracted the world is. We'll see how distracted the world is whether he can get away with it. But mm -hmm. I don't. I think if he thinks there's any opportunity to get away with it, he'll try. Interesting. Great. Um, the second question is. By 2030, what is the likelihood that you think we find um, either alien life or, you know, the signs of past alien life? Um, and this can be like planets. single cell organisms. We're not necessarily okay. talking yeah. about I was gonna sentient. Say, I was going to say different biosignatures. Yeah. yeah. So biosignatures, I think there's a, you know, 10% chance that we find something on Mars or uh, really it's just Mars or we have some strong evidence from elsewhere maybe 10 percent is too high intelligent life i'll say um you know 10 to the negative six or seven like i, I think it's really yeah. like we have really good reasons to think that it's it's not there um 
I think actually Metaculus mm-hmm. is right around 10% finding it on Mars. Although if 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 you okay. had a Metaculus, they think there's a 10% chance we'll find alien life and a 10% chance it's on Mars and a 2% chance <laughs> it's on Venus. It doesn't add up, but that's that's okay. Um third question is what is the likelihood that the uh, a majority of the five eyes and the quad boycott the 2022 Olympics? So we're looking at the U.S., China, New Zealand, Australia. Um, Where is the 2022 Japan. Olympics? Uh, Beijing, China. Oh. Um, yeah, it's the China Olympics. Ooh. What is the probability that... I I think it's about... Yeah, it's probably ballpark 20%. I just... I don't think that there's much risk... Appetite, there's much appetite to do this. I don't think that it's a strong statement in ways that... Um, people would like it to be um i don't think that yeah i I just i mean the stronger statements accusing them of genocide with the state department that seems like a pretty yeah and and they're not willing to do that so no they are the state department has i mean with the the, the whole warning that it's genocide okay yeah um and and i still and i still think (laughs) they're not gonna like I think yeah, language I just, doesn't exist perception. in our in our in our current times. If you can call something genocide and still be like, "Well, we're going to the Olympics," but that's another question for another time. Yeah. Um, Andrew, want to take us with the next question, which is, I guess, related. Yes, it's very related. Um, the next question is: By 2022, uh, what are the odds that uh, the Uyghur camps in China and the Xinjiang province uh, get closed? And that can be either again get China closed. saying that they're you know, as they said, the re-education camps and that the people have been re-educated and now they can go home or whatever their sort of spin is. But yeah, the odds that they're no longer operational. I could imagine China making announcements about that, but I think that the odds that they actually shut down the facilities and don't have people inside of them um, is what about the announcement? Probably though? close to five percent. Yeah, I, I I could say I could say that there's I I would say twenty percent chance maybe 30% chance that, that they announce that this is, you know, the problem is they'd have to, they'd have to admit that they did something wrong in order to claim that they're no longer doing it. Um, so I don't know, 15, 20% chance that, that they say that they're no longer doing it. They would this. make a climate argument I, saying they was producing too much greenhouse gas. Yeah. Is- I, maybe they could come up. So I'm saying like 15, 20% that they, that they announce something about it and five or 10% that they, that they actually, don't have people inside of them all right well you might have on the ground knowledge about this one given where you're located but what is the likelihood that uh there's saudi that uh relations between saudi arabia and israel are normalized by 2025 so official diplomatic ties established by 2025 so end of the biden administration yeah, I. It seems I'm. I'm. I, I'm. I'm bad at forecasting things. I'm close to, but uh, yeah, I think that's like a five percent chance. If generously. I was to bump it up to twenty twenty six, that. No, I. I just. I think that um, the public pushback within Saudi Arabia for doing that is too. You know, and Israel would Israel would love to have that, but I think the Saudi. But but. But not enough to to do something substantive like um, allow the Palestinians to form their own state officially and like yeah like yeah I don't think I don't think that there's a way for that to happen in a way that the Saudis would be okay with. Great, and then the last question is: um, What are the odds that there's a flare-up in the South China Sea before 2023 that results in more than 10 deaths from any one country? Or 2023. Um, 10 yeah, deaths is just months. not very many. Yeah, 10 deaths is just not very many. Like almost any reasonably large flare up would do that. Um, I think that's, yeah. It, yeah and, a lot of, and a lot of smaller, right. And a lot of, and a lot of smaller events that aren't really large scale flare ups, like somebody accidentally sinking somebody else's ship um, could do the same thing. Um, so, 25% maybe I like it's it's a really it's a really plausible event I'd want to look yeah. at the base rate stuff before I um um yeah I'd, I'd want to 
Um, I, yeah, I want to look at base rates before I, I said something strong. Great. Well, Great. you've made it through the rapid fire round. Um, as we've been telling guests at some yeah. point uh, within the next month or so, we're going to have a nice page on global guessing where you can see where all the guests have have put in their rapid fire forecast. Mm. Maybe maybe how these forecasts were put in over time. Well, don't want to promise you might anonymize the names. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it would just be interesting track. to see the spread. You'll be able to listen to you'll be, No, 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 no. You definitely shouldn't anonymize it. Like, yeah. Oh, because you want to just go back to the records and you can listen. It weekly reflects on me because you really did give me very little time. But um, yeah, we can we can normalize for the amount of time given yeah. to different guests. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. Time on forecast we can put on there. There, there we go. go. Um, well, David, it's been absolutely great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure. It seems like you can talk about any subject on with great depth with such ease it's it's, it's an absolute pleasure um anything exciting sort of coming up from you in the near future where can our listeners find you if, if you guys been watching on youtube you'll see you can find them on twitter at david manheim but why don't you take away and plug and plug plug what's what i say I, I don't know if there's anything uh, really big coming out if you're if you're really into into bio i have some uh, articles on uh, pandemic modeling um, something coming out in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, but I feel like most of the most of the listeners aren't quite aren't, aren't you know it's it's the wrong audience. Uh, yeah, definitely feel free to uh, ping me on Twitter. I I often reply. Great. Okay. So find David over on over on Twitter, and you know we'll also have his 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 website down there below as well. Um, David, absolute pleasure to have you back on the Global Guesting Weekly podcast. Hope to talk to you again in the the near future and thanks so much for coming on yeah, thank you one. all right and that's a wrap everyone thanks <laughs>